Okay, epilogue. Now I'm going to do something a little different with this commentary. Given how important epilogue is to the DCAU continuity, I've decided to do two commentaries for it. This one, the first commentary, will discuss the creator's intentions with the episode and the backstory behind its production and some of the symbolism that uh, comes about in the episode. And the companion commentary will discuss the fans' reception to the episode, my own interpretations of it, and some of the blink-and-you'll-miss-it fanboy trivia in the episode. So the, sh the, the show opens with uh, the tagline, 65 years from now. Now there's been some contention among fans about whether Batman Beyond takes place 40 years from now or 50 years from now. This would seem to indicate it's the latter, given that this takes place 15 years after the Batman Beyond series, and 50 plus 15 equals 65. The way I like to think of it is that Batman Beyond takes place 50 years from the time period of the new Batman adventures, but closer to 40 years from the time period of Justice League Unlimited. This allows me to sort of have it both ways. The character, it allows me to, to imagine that the characters age in a realistic fashion while still maintaining continuity with the various references to how much time has passed. But nonetheless, the intent is for Batman Beyond to always take place 50 years from whenever now is, and this to take place 15 years after that. So, the backstory behind the production of this episode, and I'll, I'll need to come in and out of this as other things happen on screen, but by the end hopefully I'll have gotten through the entire backstory. After uh, Bruce Timm and the others made the Return of the Joker direct-to-video movie, uh, Bruce Timm sat down with Glenn Murakami, another one of the producers, and had a little impromptu plotting session to brainstorm ideas for another direct-to-video Batman Beyond movie. And what they came up with was basically the genesis of what then became this episode. Now, I like this here. Uh, this whole episode is really about reflections and distorted reflections about how Terry feels he's nothing more than the distorted reflection of Bruce, and so on and so forth. So, I love that Terry uh, is simply angered by his own reflection there and, and destroys the the clock. And the, and the clock has always been sort of the gateway to the, ba the Batcave, the gateway to becoming Batman, to taking on that mantle. So the fact that Terry now has nothing but disgust for it and destroys it symbolizes his disgust for the Batman mantle and everything he's become. And something that uh, Dwayne McDuffie had to point out, because fans, some fans got it and other fans didn't, but the black and white sequences are not flashbacks. They're not, you know, possible futures, although I guess they could be interpreted in that way. They're intended to be Terry's fantasies. So what will happen, and it's it's easy to miss how this works, and I didn't get it till I, I saw it a few times, was that a character in, in the, the color, you know, universe, the real world, will say something, and that'll trigger a fantasy on Terry's part. It goes into black and white, and then something else will be said at the end of the black and white fantasy that brings Terry back to reality and dovetails into whatever he, into what whoever he's talking to in reality is saying. But it's very subtle and you really have to like here when he says he's sorry and then it cuts to So anyway, as I was saying, um Bruce Tim sat down with Dwayne McDuffie and they hammered out an idea and the idea was that in the time period of Batman Beyond, Selina Kyle, Catwoman, 
would set about or had set about in, in, in sometime between the time period of, of Batman and Batman Beyond, a sort of boys from Brazil type project where the idea was that Batman had finally convinced her to use her skills for good, but, you know, no zealot like a convert, she took it too far and decided that Batman didn't go far enough in punishing criminals. So she decided to create her own vigilante that would punish criminals in the way she felt they deserved. So she got a hold of cloning technology and artificially inseminated many, many women, creating a bunch of Bruce Wayne clones. She then raised one of them as her own distorted son in sort of a Manchurian candidate kind of relationship. And obviously Terry was another. And the idea was that Bruce would find out that... uh, Terry was his own clone and would shut him out from the case and, and refuse to let him be a part of it. Meanwhile, uh, Selina Kyle's quote-unquote son would be going around uh, killing some of the Batman Beyond Rogues Gallery and even some old-time Batman villains like Edward Nigma. And Terry would need to decide to be Batman on his own terms and, and comes to sort of the same conclusion he comes to at the end of this episode and uh, and would defeat Selena's son, and the whole thing would be resolved in that way. Uh, but it never got beyond that plotting session because Warner Home Video decided not to do another Batman Beyond direct-to-video movie after Return of the Joker. But when they were trying to decide how to end this season, Bruce Tim brought the idea up again, and they decided it would make a great little bookend episode. And so that's the genesis of this whole story idea. And I'll get into it a bit more later when, uh, when a couple of other things happen in the episode. But to discuss a couple of the things I just talked over, uh, uh, Waller's speech about the tea, it, he go, she goes on for like two minutes about tea and teacups, and you kind of wonder, why are they spending that much time talking about it? But she's trying to tell Terry something. It's an allegory to him and the Justice League. When she says it's real China, not that synthetic stuff, she's talking about how Batman was a real hero and how he was, you know, he, he was self-made, he was a human being, he didn't get his powers through robotics or radioactive rays or anything like that. He was the real thing. They don't make them like this anymore, she says. Heroes don't come like that anymore, so she felt she had to make one. And when she says one missing piece and the whole set is ruined, that cues Terry's fantasy into the Justice League because without the crucial member, Batman, the Justice League can't exist. Without that one piece, the whole set is ruined took me a few viewings, but I'm fairly certain that that was the intended interpretation. Now, Warhawk was there in that previous uh, black-and-white sequence. The intent there, presumably, was to show us, for all the people that thought, you know, that, that still didn't think that Batman Beyond was the real future, and thought that, well, sure, Warhawk was in the once-and-future thing, but that was only a possible future that was averted, this is clearly the real future, and he's there. So to finally silence all the naysayers, it proves that Green Lantern and Shire do get together and and do conceive Warhawk. And Aqua Girl, Marina, in that black-and-white sequence, also had Aquaman's A-symbol belt. Uh, For those that recall the Batman Beyond 2 part of the call, Aquaman was missing in action during the time period of Batman Beyond. And the fact that uh, Aqua Girl, or Aqua Woman, I suppose by this point, was wearing that belt was probably meant to uh, indicate that Aquaman had been found and that Aquawoman had finally taken on his mantle in full and become his true successor. 
So Terry mentions here his brother Matt, uh, who was five or six years younger than him. And uh, it's not a, it's not stated flat out in this episode, but Bruce, Tim, and Dwayne McDuffie have confirmed after the fact that the, that obviously Matt is also Bruce Wayne's genetic son. That what was done to Warren McGinnis completely rewrote his reproductive genetic material, and so any children he would conceive would carry Bruce's genetic material instead of his. So that goes for Terry and for Matt. And in fact, it was during the Batman Beyond series, Bruce Tim and the other creators noticed how much Terry looked like Matt and how little either of them looked like their parents, and that's what got the whole thought process going as, as far as them possibly being clones of Bruce Wayne. Now, in the original story treatment that I that I mentioned, they were going to be just pure clones. The whole idea of them being his sons, being half their genetic material and half Mary McGinnis's, was a was an innovation of, of the new version that, that actually got made, not the original story treatment. Here we have Bruce fumbling with pills and Terry refusing to help him. It's bookended later on. The intent was also that Bruce, and, and for how long, nobody knows, and it, it makes an interesting exercise to go back to Batman Beyond and see when he might have figured it out, and if in fact he knew all along. But the idea was that Bruce does know that Terry is his son, but he hasn't brought it up because he wants Terry to be able to be his own man and make his own decisions and not be hampered by that. It's completely in Bruce's character to withhold information that he feels is not in someone else's best interests. Now we go here into uh, Waller's story, a flashback to the time period of, of uh, Justice League Unlimited, and we see here the Royal Flush Gang. Now a couple of things to say about the Royal Flush Gang. The, uh, the idea is that each of the members of the Royal Flush Gang are a nod to something. Uh, and, we, and some of them don't become clear later on until they transform back into their human forms. But if you look closely, 10, which we, which we see here, is a nod to um, Bo Derek from the movie 10. And she looks just like her and is wearing clothes similar to those that Bo Derek wore in that movie. Queen, which we see here in sort of an Alice in Wonderland kind of uh, queen outfit, transforms into a man later on. And so the idea, of course, is that she is a drag queen. And here, Jack, who in the script is named Kabuki Jack, is a nod to Samurai Jack, another cartoon series. And he transforms into a, a black man with short cropped hair when he transforms later on. And that's supposed to look like Phil Lamar, the actor who does Green Lantern, and who also did the voice of Samurai Jack in that cartoon. As far as King is concerned, I'm not quite sure. He looks a bit like the character Modoc from... Marvel Comics, but why he's a giant head floating around like that, I'm not too sure, but there's probably some meaning behind that also. There is behind the other three. And I love here in a second, Shire is the first to reach for the weapon, and that was done, I'm, I'm certain, because Shire, ever since Star-Crossed and Wake the Dead, and, and she says so in Wake the Dead, that she feels her destiny is to be a destroyer, to, to bring nothing but death and to betray and kill her friends. 
So she feels that, well, once again, I'll take on that mantle, I'll be the destroyer, I'll kill Ace, but Batman understands why she's doing it and understands why he has to do it and what he can bring to the table as far as his relationship with Ace and decides to take on the responsibility instead. And I love that they used Ace here. Because she's not a Batman character per se. She's a member of the Royal Flush Gang, and in the comics they were Justice League villains and not specifically associated with Batman any more than they're specifically associated with any other member of the Justice League. But they set up a relationship between Ace and Batman and Wild Cards, which was a Batman spotlight episode more than anything else, uh, what with Joker and Harley Quinn and all that. And so they sort of set her up as a character with a relationship to Batman, and so they bring her in here and play off that relationship. And given that this is obviously another Batman-centric episode, it works very well. They were quite clever in choosing characters that they could do that with. And I must say that uh, this is... I, I'm not sure if it's my absolute all-time favorite Batman moment, but it's certainly my favorite Batman moment from Justice League and Justice League Unlimited, and probably the entire DCAU. Ace, and, and she says as much here, but there's so much going on that some some of the the implications sort of go over your head. But Ace is just like Bruce, and she's just like Terry. She was a child who had a lot of potential, but the possibility of her having a normal life was ripped away from her by fate or, or by God or would, however you want to look at it so that she could become a weapon for justice. She's nothing but a lost child who had to grow up too fast and in, in, in one sense had to grow up too fast. She had to be exposed to a world that no 12 or 13 year old should ever be exposed to. But in another sense, she never really got to grow up at all. In her case, literally, because she's about to die. And in Batman and, and, and Bruce Wayne and Terry's case, they never got to grow up because they were cast into this life of superheroing at such a young age. And in Bruce's case, he devoted himself to it when he was eight. And in Terry's case, he got inducted into it when he was 16. They never really got a chance to grow up either, and, and part of the beauty of this episode is that by the end, both Bruce and Terry have really grown up, and they've moved beyond the lone vigilante role. Bruce has, and I'll get into this when we get to the end of the episode, but Bruce has moved beyond being Batman and all that that entails, and Terry has decided he can have a normal life while still being Batman. And so it's absolutely appropriate that they use Ace here. And I love that they're sitting... See, there's Philomar. And I love that they're sitting in this childhood playground area that's been distorted. It's like the the innocence of childhood has been distorted by, by their circumstances and, and by everything that's been done to them. And so you kind of get that, du that same duality, that same distorted reflection that you get when Terry smashes the, the glass on the clock at the beginning of the episode. So Wall is about to launch into her explanation here of how Terry came to be, and it should be noted that a lot of the specifics here were Dwayne McDuffie's idea and solved a lot of problems that were inherent in the original story idea that was hashed out between Bruce, Tim, and Glenn Murakami. Those problems namely being that if Terry were a direct clone of Bruce, as was the case in the original story treatment, why would Bruce not recognize him the second they met? If Matt was also Bruce's clone, why would Selina Kyle have artificially inseminated Mary McGinnis five or six years apart? 
and so on and, and so forth. Plus, Selena Kyle was never particularly technology-savvy. Grafting Amanda Waller into that role solved a lot of those problems, and Dwayne McDuffie's idea that she used this nano-engineered uh, devices to rewrite Warren McGinnis's sperm solved a lot of those problems as well, because it made Terry and Matt Bruce Wayne's sons and not his clones. A lot has been written um, by a couple of what can only be called DCAU scholars, such as Jay Allman and Alex Weitzman, about how beautifully this episode wraps up Amanda Waller's character arc that started way back in her first appearance. Uh, Alex Weitzman wrote uh, especially beautifully about that topic in a post on the Toon Zone forums. The idea was that in Divided We Fall, Amanda Waller only learns half her lesson. She learns that she's been playing for the wrong side, but she never really learns that she's been going too far in her methods. Here, she still hasn't learned this lesson. She's switched sides. She's now trying to create a weapon for justice, although it could be argued that was her intention with Cadmus as well. But she's switched over to Batman's side, the side of the Justice League, but she still hasn't learned her lesson. She's still going too far. She's willing to take lives. She's willing to uh, completely distort everything Batman stood for because she has not yet learned that you can't subscribe to Batman's mission without also subscribing to his philosophy and to his morality and to his beliefs. And she's learned that lesson by the time Terry confronts her, but by the time she initiated Project Batman Beyond, she had not yet learned that. And through her, her, her sitting alone in that house and reflecting on it and through her relationship with God, she was able to to come to the proper conclusions eventually, but it, it dovetails very nicely into her earlier motivations in the, in the Cadmus arc. And here in a second we're going to see Phantasm for the first time since the Mask of the Phantasm movie back in the 90s. Uh, and the fact that they use Phantasm again is very appropriate, and they do it in such a way that wraps up Phantasm's character arc that started 10 years ago, much in the same way that they finally wrap up Amanda Waller's arc. Uh, Phantasm and Amanda Waller have a lot in common. They were both trying to, to mete out their version of justice, but they were going too far, and Batman confronted them both in much the same way, and he told uh, Phantasm, whose real identity is a woman named Andrea Beaumont, he said, what will vengeance solve? And she didn't understand it at the time. She, she thought that killing was the proper way to, to accomplish her goals. But here, when she confronts Amanda Waller, when she's not able to, to kill... Terry's parents, she's finally learned her lesson. She's learned what Bruce was trying to tell her all those years ago, that you that the ends can't justify the means, that you can't murder in the name of preserving life. And so all these years after she finally had that, after she had that conversation with Bruce, 40 years or, or however long it's been between then and when Terry was eight years old, she finally learns her lesson and she imparts it to Amanda Waller. And so it's sort of Bruce's philosophy twice removed that finally enlightens Amanda's, Amanda Waller and completes her character arc. And Jay Allman, also known as Maxi Zeus on, on the forums, uh, was also very, very much in love with the way this episode treated the Batman mantle. That if you think that what is Batman? Well, it's just a costume that, that anyone, if they believe enough in what it represents, can wear. 
then that sort of diminishes Bruce Wayne and everything he he's done and everything he had to put himself through to be to become Batman. And if you believe that Batman is inherently Bruce Wayne and no one else could be Batman, then not only does that diminish Terry, but it also diminishes the universality of the Batman concept. But this episode very deftly is able to have it both ways, by making Terry Bruce's son, and therefore carrying some of his genetic material and, and being a worthy successor to him in that sense. It shows that the Batman mantle is transferable, but also that there's that there's perhaps, and, and you can either believe or not believe this if you want, but there's something ineffable about the Wayne lineage, and and that is part of what allows someone to become Batman. So it allows you to sort of have it both ways, depending on how you want to look at it. And here, and I'm going to have to talk quick, but here, when Bruce comes in in a second, the idea was, and, and one of the things that Bruce Tim loves most about this episode, is that it gives Bruce Wayne a happy ending. If you, once you realize that the, the black and white sequences were not real, it becomes clear that Bruce has willingly retired from the role of Batman. He no longer goes down to the Batcave and monitors Terry. He's instead taken on more of a grandfatherly, Alfred-like role. And Bruce then has, has achieved some measure of closure. He's, he's content, finally. He's content that Gotham will be protected by Terry and by future generations and the support system he's helped create in the Justice League and has taken on uh, the role of a, a, a doting father, basically. And here we bookend the thing with the pills, where Terry accepts his connection to Bruce and helps him with them. And so it provides Bruce finally with a happy ending. He has the son he never had, that he was finally able to treat and love right, unlike the way he mistreated at times Dick and Tim. His The Wayne line will go on, Batman will go on, He's no longer a part of it, but he's found a higher purpose, family. And that's why it's a happy ending. And this book ends the very, very first shot of On Leather Wings, the first episode of Batman the Animated Series, but in reverse. It's a, it's a mirror image of that shot, which was Man-Bat flying along the buildings. And that's Kevin Conroy as the Sky Cop, book ending Kevin Conroy's first line in On Leather Wings when Man-Bat flew by and he said, did you see that? So there we go. The original concept behind and the intention behind epilogue. So if you're so inclined, listen to the companion commentary, where I'll go into how the fans responded to this episode, my own personal interpretations of it, and some of the trivia and fan references that they packed the episode with. Thanks for listening. <laughs>